the worst thing that you can have at that point is analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. You can sit there and look at stuff and try and figure it out for a very long time. But at the end of the day, you don't find out whether that analysis is right or wrong until you actually try it. So I prefer to make a much higher risk, small decision at the start and set off in a certain direction because it's much easier to change direction than it is to stop and start. So get going. If you've got uncertainty in every direction, pick what you think is the biggest risk and see if you can knock that one on the head because if that risk is realized, then you're probably dead in the water and you want to find that out as soon as possible. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Today, I'm sitting down with a very, very special guest. Dr. Sarah Dodds is a leader in the industry, very, very experienced executive, and I'm super excited to get to speak to you today, Sarah. How are you doing? Hey, Philippe, I'm really pleased to be here. So um, thank you for the opportunity to come and talk about what matters. Thank you. Thank you so much. So to kick us off, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an overview of your background. It's amazing. So I'm very keen if we can start there, please. Sure. So look, I've come into data science through a different path from most people. Um, my background and my career is actually in deep tech innovation. I started out with a degree in physics and went for all things to work for a mining company's uh, research department. So that was Camalco Research Centre out in Thomastown and discovered there that I had a love of building things and sadly a secret love of, of big boys toys. So big mining equipment um, actually still gets me kind of excited. However, what I, I really worked out at that point was I like making things and engineering was probably more my thing um, than physics. And so went across and actually did a PhD in communications engineering. Um, change in path, but still it was about how do you apply that really deep STEM knowledge to bring new things to life. So I got involved in what was going to be the NBN, but back then was looking at what happens to little pulses of laser light when you send them down pieces of glass. Uh -huh. um, so that was um, a lot of fun. Um, and what I really struggled with though still at that point was how do you do things that matter? Um, I spent some time there. I ended up working for a, a Silicon Valley spin-out from the uni um, called Virtual Photonics and really enjoyed the startup world. Um, had a couple of kids through that period, as you do, um, and mixed um, work and mixed work and, and home life um, around that balance. And ended up working for NICTA, um, which was a national ICT centre, still working in NBN technology and co-inventing some technology around monitoring what goes on inside those optical networks. Um, I wanted to take that out because I wanted my work to have an impact in the real world, um, doing things in academia and maybe winning that lottery for something that changes the world in 100 years' time wasn't enough for me. I wanted to be able to see and taste the results of, of the work that I did. 
Um, so I got involved with the commercialization team um, and their good and bad news was if you want this to happen, you're going to have to make it happen. So I ended up working with them on a new spin out, which ended up being a thing called monitoring division. And that was where I encountered one of the most profound questions that actually changed the rest of my career. And it was from a guy called Ralph Petrov, who was an entrepreneur in residence and, and was from Alabama um, in the deep south and had the most gorgeous accent. Um, and he's one of the very few people in this world who's called me princess and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> um, but his question was, why would somebody pay money for what you've got? And the first time he asked that question, my answer was because we've got a patent, right? It was back in that scientific versus if you publish it, then anybody can use it versus the patent that means you've got some protection around it. And he said, no, 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 no. Why would somebody pay money for what you do? It took me six months to understand that question. And it took me the next probably year to come up with an interesting answer to it, which took my thinking into a whole new dimension. And it's still a question I ask about everything I do with my teams with data science, everything I do with an interaction with a customer is that data science costs money to develop and data science costs money to run. So why would somebody pay money for what you're doing? And really what that's asking is where's the lever? What are you actually going to change in somebody's business through the application of what you're doing? So we did take the company out. Uh, it was called Monitoring Division. Um, it was a fabulous ride. And I went out as the founding COO. So that was pretty much the end of my technical career at that point. Um, still a deep love of STEM and still leading a STEM team. Uh, we took the head of commercialization out of our CEO, as our CEO. Um, and he announced on day one that I'm moving to Silicon Valley next week. You're running Australia. Congratulations. You're smart. Learn how to do it. Um, interesting exercise in being thrown off a cliff, but... That was my introduction really to product development. It was my introduction to leading teams. It was my introduction to how do you actually run a company and a really deep understanding of the difference between being an employee and being a co-owner of a company and understanding that question about where does the money come from? And mm -hmm. sometimes as, as technologists, we take for granted that we're going to get paid. Yeah. But when you're actually running a small company and it's a startup, it gets far more immediate as to how much funding have you got, how long is it going to last, and how are you eventually going to stand on your own two feet. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a fabulous experience, but unfortunately mixed with some um, sad events in my personal life in that my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer the day we spun out, and he actually died while I was on the plane to the US for our first product launch. No! <laughs> It was the hardest and easiest decision of my life to come home. Yeah. It, this, this was something I'd poured my heart into for years for this to happen, but, but this was my dad. Yeah. Um, so what was good about that fairly horrendous experience was having a team where everybody said, you have to go home. There is no question about this. You have to go home. Um, so I went down, set up the demo, did all the technical work that I needed to do to be ready for the launch. Um, contacted everybody I was going to be going to be um, talking to and the chair of the session I was going to be speaking at in the conference and said, look, really sorry, got to go. Mm. Um, got back to LA, Qantas put me on a plane and got back and came home and, and organised Dad's funeral. Um, but it was a really interesting test for me around priorities. Um, unfortunately, that for me was also pretty much the end of that startup. While I stayed for a while longer, uh, my mum was blind and ended up with some chronic health. Um, conditions and for me being flying in and out of the US while she was 
in and out of hospitals. Um, wasn't good. Yeah. Um, but I learned a lot from that experience about people and I learned a lot about how you work together as a team and that you really need different people who are willing to support each other to make things work. Um, from that, I ran my own consultancy for a while around deep tech commercialization. Um, did a stint with a university around uh, industry engagement and helping them get some more exposure from their work. Um, and then, of all things, got picked up by CSIRO to head up their health innovation program. Um, so that was the, the basically about how do you re-engineer healthcare with digital. Um, it surprised me, and I think it surprised them, but it turned out to be a marriage made in heaven. I, I did had a great time at CSIRO heading up that program, heading up a program around the digital economy, um, which had some data science people in it. Um, but then eventually uh, Larry Marshall came in as the new CEO and I ended up founding uh, CSIRO One. So I was looking after the implementation of, of that program. Wow. And that was great because Larry had been one of the VCs we pitched to around the startup. Right. He wanted me there because he knew the journey I'd been on. And I got to talk to a whole bunch of other researchers about this whole new dimension of thinking that actually has much more power and helps your work make a difference. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting as well in terms of helping people connect with customers. And some of the scientists in that first group we talked through took through on had their first customer conversation after 20 years working on a new technology. And can you imagine what's at stake when you're actually picking up the phone to make that call? Because if you're wrong and you've been solving the wrong problem, there is a lot of your personal identity at stake. And almost always in those calls, the first couple of calls that you make, you are wrong. Yeah. And you need to pick yourself up on the floor and then have the exploration and then work out what is the actual problem that you could help to solve. Mm. So um, that was fabulous. And once I got that off the ground, I got to be a futurist for a little while, worked with CSIRO Futures, which sounds really sexy, but is actually just reading a whole lot of very boring reports and then writing reports about what might happen. <laughs> uh, so after I left CSIRO, I went into the corporate world and had a stint at Telstra Health, helping bring some new directory technology to life. Again, it's still new product development, and it's a weirdness in the health system that different the same person working at two organisations is allowed to do different things. Their scope mm -hmm. of practice depends on what they're employed to do. Um, went from there to a collaboration between Australia Post and National Australia Bank that was looking to shut down online identity fraud using data science. Um, that was my introduction and the first data science team that I worked with. But it was also new product development. Um, yeah. A guy there, um, Ali Akbarzadeh, who I learned so much about product ownership from and so much about the whole product market fit, um, particularly in, in that um, consumer-facing market. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, went across to Art Group, um, which was where the data science team had come from to help set up and reset their data science team. And from there to AGL, who was setting up a centre of excellence around um, data and analytics and looking after setting up processes for their data science initiatives and also um, set up MLOps, which was my introduction to that tech. So as you can see from that okay. long history, I've come in to data science, as data science for me as the latest in a long line of new technologies that are getting out of the lab and getting into real life okay. and figuring out what makes them tick and how do you actually get them to value. And that means I have really different conversations with the, the data science teams that I work with. Exactly. Yeah. That that uh, and that's and that's um, what I wanted to um, ask you about next is 
what given given your background in in startups in commercialization in in taking things out of the lab and getting them to value what what do you think we're missing as a um, as a data science industry what are we not thinking about enough what should we be focusing on more um, where do you see some of the gaps between um, the the world from your experience and now be coming into into the data science space um, so the people who've worked with me know there's two things I well, there's a few things I go on about which I see slightly different to most people um, one of those is change management mm-hmm. Um, Because what you're actually trying to do, I think there was a gorgeous quote from Ian Opperman in another session last week that says, when you're trying to achieve an outcome, that means that by definition, you're not there yet. Stop and think about that. And to get from where you are to that outcome, there is going to be change. And the change I'm talking about is business change management, not IT change management. And I've had some very funky conversations where we've been talking about change management, where I was talking business change and the other person was talking IT change for for quite some time before we worked out we were actually talking about different things. But rocket science in some ways is the easy stuff. Mm -hmm. Human beings are actually way more complex, way less logical, and trying to figure out how something is going to land with them is an art in in, in its own form, and that's really what change management is about. Um, so in the startup world and in innovation, there's a, a triple play that we talk about a lot of the three essential things you need to bring a product to life. And that is feasibility, which in STEM is almost always the thing we naturally want to do first because it's under our control and we understand it and it's black and white. Then there's desirability, which is why would somebody pay money for what you're doing? And goes back to that question. So it's really about what is the customer's problem that you're trying to solve? Um, And by customer, I don't mean end user. Why would somebody pay for it is actually a really important thing. Not why would somebody use it, but who's going to actually pay for it? Um, Please think about that one if you're into this. um, Great distinction, right? Seen in the startup world so many dead bodies of companies that got those two confused. Um, Don't. Um, So then that whole desirability piece Um, about why would somebody pay money for it and then whose job changes and how does the person whose job change feel about it, what workflow is it going into and where's the lever that you're trying to pull? All of those questions about, and they're all about change. And then the third piece to it is about viability um, because data data science costs money to develop and costs money to run and somebody's got to pay for it. When you put those into an equation, about the cost to to develop um, and the cost to run and then the benefits that come out of it, does that actually wash as a business case? Mm. Um, And my other favourite quote from Ralph, going back a long way, I think it was still from Ralph, was there's only three reasons why anybody buys anything. They buy it to save money, they buy it to make money, and they buy it to not get sued. So yeah. if you're going to put your work into one of those buckets, which one of those buckets does it come back to? And, yeah, there might be some interim stages, but when you wash it right down to fundamentals, um, what's the reason that sits behind it? Yeah. Ah, oh, this is this is great. This is great. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen um, uh, a lot of projects um, not take this uh, into consideration enough. Uh, I've had a lot of projects where we haven't focused on this enough, and um, and we've 
had a lot of a lot of issues down the road where like if you if you think about the um the desirability like we've had cases where um we build really great predictive models that were showing how a customer can save money um the information was being delivered the predictions were being delivered to the customer on a daily basis um but then the change management piece the implementation of that at the customer end so they could activate the the value was almost completely missing um and there was a case where we were sending them leads there were that were ranked according to value um they hadn't allowed for that they and the customer was calling them at random yep and one of the metrics that we were measuring on was the value that this was providing but in the interim we had uh, a middle step that wasn't prioritizing the calls for value and it was and it was a a change management component um activating the business changing the workflows etc and and it's it's life life or death yeah and you would not believe how creative people can get about not doing something they don't want to do <laughs> we all do it right but you don't want to be on the receiving end of that when the thing that you're trying to get across is is your new data science initiative yes yes exactly exactly um so, so yeah so so this is this is really great in in um and i am going to come back to um some of the some of the other um key things that 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 you mentioned to your teams um on an ongoing basis but if we can spend a bit more time on the on the change management piece um what are what are some some requirements or some ways that you've seen uh that change management goes helps it goes go right what does it look like when it goes wrong what are the the differences between between the the two the two approaches so so change management to me starts at the very beginning and it gets back to that desirability feasibility viability discussion that we like to do feasibility first but feasibility is actually really expensive desirability should come first because it costs a lot less and it also defines then the right thing to be building um, nobody wants to be asked for a model to do something and deliver it to the business and then have them look at you blankly and go, great, now what do we do with it? Um, and I think more people have had that experience um, than should have. So right up at the start, the change management on the business side can start with thinking about who is your customer, um, who's, what workflow is it going to go into, what are the KPIs in that space and how are they going to use it? So a really great example around that is one um, initiative we're involved with, which was about trying to predict whether customers were going likely to complain. So whether it was going to go up to a regulator or whether, you know, how annoyed were they at the start of the call? And the theory was that the agents taking the calls, well, we worked out the, the workflow and this is what the agents were going to do and this is the screen it was going on. We did that bit of it. And here's the number that's going on the screen. In fact, I think it was a traffic light, a red, yellow, green traffic light. Mm -hmm. What they didn't account for is that agents are rewarded on how many calls they get through an hour. So there are no KPIs for them around who goes on to complain. But if they don't get through their quota of calls because they've spent more time with this person trying to resolve their problem, then they actually get penalised for it. That stuff you can actually work out right at the start. And that's that's 
where change managers are wonderfully human people that can dig into that side of things really well. That's, that is a fantastic example of aligning, aligning, understanding and aligning incentives at the get-go. Um, yeah. Be, 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 sorry? And the, the other piece that I think goes with that, which is I think about change management together with some tech work, is I'm actually a big fan of wireframing. Mm-hmm. So the challenge I've learned over a long career is any new technology that you're bringing to life People can't get their heads around it. They haven't seen it before. They don't have any life experience of it. Um, They may have um, some odd expectations depending on what corner of things they may have had a little bit of exposure to. And so they don't actually know how to ask the right questions or how to explain what they actually need. And so the quickest way to resolve that is to, and I think you've actually talked about this as well, right, is ask them what they want, flip it up in a wireframe with, as little work behind it as you can, or maybe even just dummy data and give it back to them and say, here you go, does that solve your problem? Uh-huh. Um, or the other piece I look at it, the other way I tend to look at it, my favourite question is let's assume data science is magic. Yep. You've told me what you want. If I give it to you, what are you going to do with it? Yes. And when you get that blank look back at what do you mean, what am I going to do with it? your problem it's like now we need some change management because we have to find the lever yes so it doesn't and it doesn't matter what the data science is right we've got really competent people and i am not a coder i love working with data scientists because they know stuff i don't Mm -hmm. but the bit that i can help is with this bit about untangling the complexity of what do you need and what are you going to do with it where's it going to fit um, the other bit that goes with that is what are the software development cycles that this is going to have to fit into because that's going to set your time to value. But mm-hmm. most importantly, if I can predict anything for you that's going to change the business tomorrow for the better, what's the one thing that you want me to predict? And if I give it to you, where are you going to use it? Yes. And if you can answer those questions, then we're on the way to alignment. Where we, that, That's the hook, Right. If, if because that makes them think about it not in terms of the engine but in terms of their business and what they want to change and their KPIs and then you start having that conversation about this you can see now how it's going to help you and then we've got to go and do the feasibility work in the background and there's still the intrinsic risk that there might not be a pattern or that the data might not be there but we've now got a customer yeah yes yes ah that is great how um Either, how do you help customers get to the point where you can be having those conversations and, and fill in the gaps around those, those blank stairs um, that, that you mentioned? Uh, maybe, maybe let's start there. Yeah, how, how can you um, help people get, get to that point um, quicker? I'm, I'm a big fan of things called teachable moments. And in some cases, you actually can't have the meaningful conversation until they've got to a teachable moment. And I'm trying to get to that with as little pain and as much speed as possible. So those questions I ask, um, as long as they're happy to engage on those questions about what are you going to do with it, um, if the answer is I don't know, then sometimes it's almost like a a complex solution sale. All right, who do I need to go and talk to to find out what are the conversations we need to have? And we're digging into that side of things about where is the lever because they can sometimes tell you the lever, but they can't tell you how the lever works. Uh-huh. So 
okay, if that's the lever, these are the who, who are the people I go and talk to and then go and run some workshops with them about what is the actual problem that we're looking to solve and what does a workable solution look like? And then wireframe it and reflect it back because it, you need to iterate. In anything like this, your first version is not going to be the right version, but you can't get to the right version without the incorrect first version. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. People don't have the conceptualization in their head to be able to figure it out without looking something that, at something that's an approximation, then going, oh, okay, that bit's, that bit's right, but yeah, no, not, not that bit. Okay, great, we're making progress, and then you can iterate and start developing behind that around the bit that you, you now have some confidence is right. And as an industry, we need to be comfortable with that, comfortable to be wrong and comfortable to improve and iterate. In, in data science, so it's one of the things I do with my teams mm-hmm. is I have to be able to be wrong and they have to be able to be wrong. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I do get to role play that and there's a bit of shock at the start where, hey, guys, I might get this wrong, but this is what I'm thinking. And getting to, uh, there's a big thing about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And for me, a lot of that psychological safety is about we learn by being wrong. Yeah. And it has to be okay. For anybody who's seen a, a child learn to walk, the day they take their first steps, you don't say, oh, little Johnny failed to walk today. Mm-hmm. Like we say, no, we've taken the, he's, he's, we, he took his first step today. Isn't that great? And there's a lot of encouragement around it. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the approach I look to take to how we learn. It's got to be okay to get things wrong within a relative scope. The one thing that's not okay is not telling anybody that you were wrong and trying to fix it <laughs> because um, other, it's, it's not learning at that point. It's hiding. Um, and generally the problem gets bigger until it gets out in the open and then we can actually work on it together. Oh, I love that. That is so true. That is so true. It needs to be, yeah, open and transparent. And it's almost like it doesn't, it doesn't matter where we start as long as we're kind of like in the ballpark then it's just progress. Let's get it a little bit better. In the beginning, we don't know. And the worst thing that you can have at that point is analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. You can sit there and look at stuff and try and figure it out for a very long time. But at the end of the day, you don't find out whether that analysis is right or wrong until you actually try it. So I prefer to make a much higher risk, small decision at the start and set off in a certain direction because it's much easier to change direction than it is to stop and start. So get going. If you've got uncertainty in every direction, pick what you think is the biggest risk and see if you can knock that one on the head because if that risk is realised, then you're probably dead in the water and you want to find that out as soon as possible. Great, 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 great. Ah, that is awesome. Um, tell me tell me more about the, the wireframing piece and areas where uh, or approaches that can help the wireframing make it easier and... Um, Maybe let's start there and then, then I'll ask you more. Um, look, wireframing has been around in startups for a very long time. Um, if it's a piece of hardware, it might be that you've got the front plate on the hardware, um, but there's actually nothing inside the box. Um, and pure technologists sometimes struggle with that and regard it as cheating because it's not working on the feasibility side of things. It doesn't actually work. Mm. Not supposed to. What it's supposed to do is inspire somebody's thinking about how they could use it, where it might fit in a a piece of infrastructure, where it might fit in a particular workflow, how it might make a difference. Hmm. 
Um, so I've done it with dashboards. When we did our startup, we had a fascinating experience of trying to generate some dummy data for a demo that we wanted to give about how the tech worked and just be able to put up a spectrum. Mm. We had to figure out what we thought the spectrum was going to look like because mm-hmm. we didn't have the electronics that, that it was seriously bleeding edge stuff that was taking months to come from the US. Um, but it was the what does it look like? Who's going to use what? What buttons do you need? What's the user experience going to be? And what do they need? So if you found a customer who's got a problem, what do they need to solve the problem and how are they going to use it? Mm. And that's where the wireframing, I think, can come into it. That's great. That's great. And and how how do you think um, people can close the, the gap when it becomes a bit more abstract? Or sometimes people might think interacting with a model, um, it might... It might um, not necessarily have a, a visual component. Are there any any things that we can do when um, people see it from that perspective? Great question, Philippe. Uh, look, the analogy I'm going to flip back at you is we don't build data science algorithms. We build solutions that are powered by data science algorithms. Mm-hmm. And that's like saying we don't just build engines, we build cars. Mm-hmm. So do we interact with the engine? Do we talk about the engine or do we talk about how it feels to drive it? You Right? It yep. brakes, preferably four wheels and a steering wheel is a good start. Maybe a cup holder and, and air con's probably good. None of that really has much to do with the engine's performance, which is what we sometimes look at when we're developing the model itself. We're looking mm. at the um, what's the performance of it um, and various very technical things. And I should be able to reel those off, um, false positive rates, false negative rates. So it's actually how does the engine work? Mm. But actually I think the bigger conversation is, is the car fit for purpose? Mm. If you're designing a car for a particular demographic, then let's start with what that demographic needs, not... I've got a 4.2 liter six cylinder engine. Um, so it's just a different way of starting things. So even if they're not, if people aren't going to be interacting with the engine directly, what's the car? Mm. How are they going to be interacting with the car? What is it that they need to get the engine working for them through whatever the the interface is? Yeah, great, 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 great. Um, yeah, that really puts it into into perspective that there's a, um, that the user needs to be um, treated and approached as a, um, as a person that, and, and the car analogy is great. Yeah, it, it, I actually quite like that one because we do like building high performance engines. Mm. Um, and we talk about the, the accuracy they need, we talk about the precision and the speed that they need to operate at but it's actually let's think about what's the person who's going to be consuming the output of that engine going to need to get to an outcome. Because at the end of the day, you want to get from A to B, not own a 4.2 litre six-cylinder engine. Uh So I do think about that one quite a lot. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes 
for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.